90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Ah, doing pretty well. Um, trying to not drown around here. We just got some pretty awesome storms, lots of flooding, so that was exciting. Yeah, we actually got some rain out here, which was really welcome, given all the fires we were having. And <laughs> I'm actually preparing to go on a trip. We're going to be doing some teaching, uh, teaching Python as part of my job at Unidata. Be going back to, believe it or not, Pennsylvania for my first training <laughs> exercise. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes, so I'll be gone on that trip next week. And so we'll have to record next week's show a little bit early. So if you've got any feedback, send it in. <laughs> oh nice that's pretty good it's weird now that you're um to the west of me because usually i would get the weather first or we'd get totally different weather but now we're sort of on the same storm system track so we'll have to figure out something else to talk about i guess <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> you know speaking of feedback we did get a couple pieces of feedback this week uh, one was from mike moon who sent in a link to an automatic dartboard Excellent. Which, <laughs> yes, we, we will link it into the show notes. It had a lot of interesting. He sent it in because it said, well, it's got high-speed vision and all of this uh, electronics, Arduino, Raspberry Pi. It sounded like it ticked a lot of the boxes for things <laughs> that I like to talk about. And yeah. it is uh, very cool. You throw a dart. It uses multiple camera tracking. And then it moves the dartboard so that you always get a bullseye. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> right. And then... <laughs> Uh, listener Aaron wrote in and said that he had done some calculations about the six millisecond delay in the popcorn paper that we talked about a few weeks ago <laughs> and found that the pressure wave should travel at about 477.5 meters per second uh, in water vapor at 100 C. And so it did some math and said that uh, the delay could be the liquid water flashing to vapor and that the rupturing popcorn kernel fits exactly the definition of a boiling liquid vapor explosion. That's awesome. <laughs> anyway, so thanks for writing in with your comments, Mike and Aaron. That popcorn paper turned out to be a pretty popular one. Man, it really did. That's pretty funny. I mean, everybody loves popcorn, though, so it's not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but this week, we have a special guest joining us to talk about an app that we've had several requests to discuss. So welcome, Shane Loeffler, to the show. Hi, Shane. How are you? Hey, doing good. How are you guys? Excellent, as always. Awesome. Right. <laughs> so, Shane, before we get started talking about the app and all the questions that people had for you, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I am from Minnesota. I grew up on the North Shore of Lake Superior, kind of enjoying the outdoors up there. Ended up going to University of Minnesota in Duluth um, for my undergrad. I kind of did both geology and astronomy there. Um, got hired at the planetarium, had a great time doing that kind of thing. So I've always kind of had a outreach um, kind of angle to what I'm trying to do. Um, and now I'm down at the University of Minnesota um, pursuing my master's here, uh, also in the earth sciences department. Wow. So geology and astronomy. You know, Shannon and I are both geology and meteorology, oh. but it seems like there's a lot of double majors in geology and some other interesting, generally earth science. But so how did you get into geology and astronomy? I kind of, it's actually kind of the other way around. It's astronomy to geology kind of. So I, oh, I okay. 
lived in the middle of nowhere, um, had a great star viewing up, up in northern Minnesota. Um, so kind of got into the stars that way. I watched, of course, Carl Sagan's Cosmos series and <laughs> was completely convinced that that is exactly what I needed to do and still am. Um, so went to school knowing I wanted to do something with sciences, something with astronomy, um, and then kind of came to geology through actually the planetarium. So um, I was hired in the planetarium and the, the director of the planetarium was a geologist, of course, because they're always mixing in like that. And um, <laughs> Yeah, started figuring out that, that geology was a, a wonderful, cool thing to do on the planet that I'm actually on, right? So we live on Earth. <laughs> you might as well study it while you're here. So it's a, it's a good good planet to study. So, yeah. So was there any interest in planetary geology? Oh, yeah. So that was my, for a while there, I was really going down that track. I, I was actually accepted into a master's program to look at some Mars, in, like to do some Mars um, studying at the university uh, out in so the Western Washington University, sorry, with the Melissa Rice out there, but I ended up getting this funding for the app and that um, ended up pulling me towards Minnesota here. So yeah, I've, I've really loved planetary geology. I always, I'm following all the, the missions as they go and uh, someday I'll get back into that stuff. Yeah, it's always nice to actually be able to stick your actual hands on the data of the planet you're studying. So I can, uh, I feel for you there. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one of the things that, that kept pulling me back to like hardcore earth geology is that you didn't have to like fight people for the same data and race to the finish there. You could actually go out and on your own time, collect your own data and know that you were the only one that had it and, and could, could go on it with that. Right. Kind of a, <laughs> exactly. Hey yeah. John, did you notice that we have a, a trend towards all these Minnesota people coming on the podcast? I don't know what this says about us, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned your app and I guess before we get into really what it does, it's flyover country, and it'd be interesting to know how you came up with this idea. Was it on an airplane? Yeah, yeah. So um, flying in an airplane has always been uh, one of my favorite things to do, looking out the airplane windows, just like, as you guys can probably attest to, like one of the most wonderful ways to see the geology and the landscape of our cool planet. So yeah, it was on um, a few different flights kind of incrementally. Um, I've been fortunate enough to do some undergrad research um, that, that allowed me to fly around. So I got to look out the window and um, tested GPS on my phone, um, realized that it worked if you're in the window seat, and then realized that there's lots of other data around. So if we put those two things together, we can make a cool app potentially. That's awesome. Um I was, I initially, when I found out about this, I was like, flyover country. I'm like, man, that's really derogatory because I live in Oklahoma, right? And so <laughs> that's always sort of said like that. But knowing you're from Minnesota, I guess, yeah, you know, that makes me feel a little better. We're trying to co-op the term, take it back from all the, the yeah. derogatory kind of coast <laughs> snobs. I'm very pro <laughs> this. So that made me, that made me super happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So I... You can download this app on the App Store, and I've actually got it pulled up on my phone right now. But could you tell me, or could you tell our listeners a little about what they can do with this app? Yeah, so the, the basic idea is that if you're flying, or it also works for driving and kind of hiking trips, but before you go on your adventure, whatever it is, you would enter your path, basically. So it's a map interface. You tap on the map. And so if, say, you're flying from 
I always fly from Minneapolis to somewhere. So let's go from Minneapolis to San Francisco. You tap Minneapolis, tap San Francisco, and it kind of creates a buffered strip. It's really our best guess using just basically a, a great circle, shortest distance, um, that of what you'll be flying over, essentially. And then it takes that shape that it's created, basically a polygon, and sends it to several different geoscience databases um, and asks for what data they have there. So pulls back that data and then the key is that you can save that to your phone for offline use. So you can sit there, push the save for offline button and it'll spend maybe a minute or two downloading all the maps, downloading all the article text, downloading all the geologic maps and all the points of interest. It'll save those to the phone so then when you're up in the sky or out in the middle of nowhere you don't need an internet connection and you can still interact with all that data while you're actually encountering it and know where you are in relation to it. This is the coolest thing ever. I just want to, if no one has, <laughs> if, if people haven't done this, which I know a lot of our listeners have, but if you haven't looked at this flyover country, it's so neat because it's not just, you know, what, what is underneath you, I mean, but it's, it's the surface geology. It's all kinds of cool points of interest and everything like that. And the cool thing about the paths is you can actually, you know, it's not just, just like Shane just said, it's not just for flying, right? You can actually make like a driving path, but you can be very specific. You don't have to have just two points, um, which is a really, that's really cool. Yeah, there's a, so there's that, you probably found it, the little driving mode kind of hidden in the side menu, which gives mm -hmm. you a kind of a skinnier strip of region that you're looking in, but it gives you actually, the only difference really is that it gives you higher resolution geologic maps. So it gives you kind of almost state survey level It'll have some formation names, whereas the flight maps are pretty broad, pretty generalized, and you um, end up with a little bit less detail there for the sacrificing the big coverage area. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, I guess that, that leads us to what is it, can you describe, like, what is it that you're getting? You just said geologic survey state level map stuff, but there's a lot more data than that that go into this. Yeah, so we have a few different main sources. So those geologic maps are all coming from um, a resource out of the U University of Wisconsin-Madison called Macrostrat, and they have a, a bunch of cool, I could talk about them for a while, they've got a bunch of great tools that they're developing there. But geologic maps come from Macrostrat. Um, we have fossil locations of like cool charismatic megafauna, like giant beavers and things like that. Those are coming <laughs> from the Neotoma database. Um, and we have dinosaur fossil locations um, coming from the paleobiology database. And then we've also kind of custom curated a suite of Wikipedia articles that we actually host here at the University of Minnesota. Um, at least we host the, their locations and their titles so that we can go out to Wikipedia to get them um, about the landscape. So um, anything to do with kind of physiographic features that you might see flying or driving, um, we've kind of tried to pull those all into our little database and allow you to search those. We also have some um, core sample locations from uh, a lab here at the University of Minnesota called LACOR that does a lot of lake sediment, but also continental drilling and coring. And then there's ocean core data as well. Um, so when you're flying over a big swath of the ocean, you can read a little bit about, you can read like the abstracts of some of the publications from cores that have been taken from the ocean there, why they were taken. Uh, not only are these this paleo database, um, it, it's not only just names, but there's awesome pictures of these dinosaurs too. So it's a little like offline Pokemon playing as well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, dealing with real data is always tricky, but you're dealing with real data from a lot of different databases and data sources. So I'm guessing that was not a trivial task to do this <laughs> and then try to downsample it and display it in some intelligent way. 
Yeah, and that's that's by far you nailed it. That's the ch- biggest challenge we have <laughs> is dealing with all these different sources and and getting their data to interact with a mapping library that we can display on a map in a, on a phone. So um, they all take different queries. Um, so they take different structures of how we ask for the data. So we have to kind of custom build each request to these databases in real time on the device and then receive those different formats of data and figure out how to manipulate them into the um, a, a way that we can show them on the map. So yeah, that's definitely the biggest challenge is figuring out how to deal with these different data sources, but it's becoming easier and easier. Um, the, the NSF is funding uh, this kind of push towards making data more available called EarthCube. I don't know if you guys have, have run across that term ever, but there's kind of a group oh, yeah. of um, the, the geoinformatics kind of community that's working together to make these these sources, like all of the ones I listed, um, kind of have more common formats and more common ideas about how to return or how to ask for data. And so it's actually, it's become less and less of a challenge. When we first started a couple of years ago, even in those two years, we've really seen a pretty big improvement um, in some of the sources that we hit for fossils, for example. We can, much easier to get fossils from Neotoma than it was a couple of years ago. Um, and so that's, there's a lot of big progress there. Um. I guess when did when did flyover country first go sort of out there online? I think we released it at AGU in um, the American Geophysical Union meeting in I think December of 2015, if I'm remembering right. So that was about we started uh, working on it probably eight months or so before that, um, and had a pretty buggy release at that meeting. But it's a little (laughs) bit better now. I want. It's just (laughs) impressive to me how. how much data you have now versus sort of when it started too. Like you guys have worked to incorporate so much more in than when it first came out. So that's, that's cool to see as well. Cause it just gets more and more interesting. I feel like when I use it. Yeah. And more to come hopefully is that's our, we've got a couple more years to work on it. So yeah, we're hoping to pull in a lot more stuff. Well, and so this is a project that you're working on with some co-developers as well, right? Oh yeah, so um, definitely not just me. Um, we have a couple software developers that have been hired onto the project, um, and they're truly geniuses. Without them, there's there's no chance that that <laughs> I could have hacked this together. Um, uh, we've got so yeah, CGI is our main software developer. Um, Alex Morrison also works on the project um, and works at the LACOR lab here at the University of Minnesota. Um, Amy Mirbo uh, has been kind of the partner in crime for this thing from the start, so we've been um, kind of scheming and working together um, since the very beginning of this app. And then Reed McEwen is kind of like a technical advisor. He's a, both a geoscience, geoscientist, so he's got a master's um, from this department here at the University of Minnesota, and he also has a master's in computer um, in, in software engineering. So he's like a super, super powerful resource. He can combine both worlds and, and has been super helpful. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot of a lot of different areas of expertise that are required to do this. I mean, definitely the CS side and the geo side, and that's where people always seem to hit problems is getting computer scientists to speak normal language and getting geoscientists to speak things that <laughs> the computer scientists can understand. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess it's probably been a pretty iterative process on this app, right? Working on kind of the user interface and what you show or how much you show. Yeah, so... We're actually doing a big iteration right now where we're um, we're kind of refactoring how the the app is the user interface looks and how the app is working internally. Um, so we're kind of letting the version that lives in the stores right now kind of sit there. Um, it's it's stable enough and has 
um, few enough complaints day to day that um, it can live there for a while while we rebuild. We're really truly building it from the ground up again using a few different um, better and newer technologies that uh, we're really hoping will uh, improve the app a lot as we as we start to add more and more data sets. It gets it gets crazy if we have this old cold code base that we've kind of put together as we learned how to put something like this together. So. Um, yeah, it'll be much better in the future, hopefully. As, so this is one of my questions. As This is why I keep John around, is to do that translating for me um, in terms of computer sciences to geologist. <laughs> um, but my question is, like, what is your background in coding? Did you have an interest in this, or did you have to go out and find your team members and say, I need you to do this thing? I don't even know if it's possible. Yeah, so starting out, I, I'm purely a geologist and astronomy background, so I didn't have any really hardcore coding experience. Mm -hmm. So I had, I'd always played around with it on my own time, kind of. Um, and I've also, for a couple of the astronomy research projects I did, I was having to process data um, using some some programming languages that will not be named. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> they've got some old stuff there. I'll, I'll name it. IDL uh, is one of them. I don't know if you guys have come across mm -hmm. that monster. But um, so playing with that kind of thing got me, at least I, I knew um, the basics of it. Uh, so I knew that this kind of thing would be possible. Like I knew that we could put the pieces together to make it. Um, but at the time, yeah, starting out, I really had no experience with um, building an application, let alone a mobile application. And so it was really um, tons of research just figuring out what technologies we could use. Um, we ended up using uh, kind of a suite of web technology so that we could build the app once. You'll notice it looks the exact same on Android and iOS, which is kind of a, a side effect of the fact that we built it using um, what is essentially, it, it's essentially a website that we've hacked together to, to work offline and things like that. Um, but it allows us to write one code base and not build it twice because we knew as a small team um, with limited experience, there would be no way that we could build an iOS app and build an Android app. And we really wanted to cover both of those platforms. Um, so yeah, coming into it, didn't have much coding experience, but I, I can say now that I can build an app and I can, I can, I've been playing with a few side projects to build other apps and yeah, I, I've really picked it up and it's been fun. Uh, that's quite heartening for those of us that maybe want to get into, into technology, but are kind of scared. So that makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, there's, I really recommend just, um, jumping into, to some web development kind of stuff because it's so versatile. You can build anything from a phone app to your web page to somebody else's web page. Um, you can do a lot with web tech these days. So it's so JavaScript, HTML, and CSS can get you really far. Yeah, I was going to ask if this was a you know JavaScript based thing. It seems like JavaScript is eating the world. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a beast to keep up with. Every it seems like every day there's a new framework that you're supposed to know everything about and try to keep up with. So yeah, we're we're definitely in the trenches right now as we switch technologies around here just deciding which one to try and then let alone learning the new paradigm that they've come up with in the last who knows how long. And then there's a new one the next day. So yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so, I mean, how, how did you go about learning that? We've talked a lot about learning programming languages on here before learning how to program for oh, cool. a scientist. So you know, what was your process approaching that? Cause you had a project, but I'm imagining you had to go through several sets of resources before you found something that kind of clicked. Yeah, it was a, definitely an iterative process of um, trying things. Um, so we originally were starting with an Android app. We, would, we were going to try and code it in Java, and that went nowhere fast. So we started um, <laughs> playing with some web app tech 
that would that we could we could get a map on the screen and we were excited like we had a map on the screen we we're using a, a library called leaflet which i really recommend if you're just barely getting into um some mapping it it can really do a lot for you and it's it's pretty user friendly and um so yeah i think it was really just having like coming up with we had this we knew what we wanted to do um and having that kind of project-based learning that we could work with um really helped drive towards a goal at least so having so coming up with some idea no matter how simple and then trying to hack it together um is really i think how i've learned at least um and and building it in a few different iterations so you can build it one way we built it with leaflet and then we build it the same thing again with a slightly different technology and seeing how those two things are similar and different um was really useful too and then so you write this one web app that you can deploy to iOS, deploy to Android. Have you had problems with like the Apple Store? Because I know some people that have been doing apps for a while saying that the Apple Store has been uh, difficult to deal with in terms of getting apps approved because they want all of these uh, human interface guidelines followed to the, to the letter. Yeah, they, they're definitely quite a bit harder than Android. Um, I haven't had too much of a problem. Uh, it used to take them we'd submit something and it would take a week maybe two weeks for them to to get around to i'm not sure what they do if they look at it or if giant <laughs> robots look at it or what goes on in there but um so yeah uh nothing completely unreasonable I, I, we haven't had any issues with like the user interface or anything like that they did have us put in like some specific wording in our app description when we added the ability to keep the gps on when you like put the app in the background um, that would say like, Hey, you're going to use battery. If you do this, um, just be aware. So there's been a couple things, but, um, hasn't been too bad really. And they've actually gotten a lot faster about, um, approving updates to apps and things like that. Uh, from, like I said, a week and week and a half to now it's probably one or two days. So it's gotten a lot better. Yeah, that's quite a big improvement, but so you're doing a master's and you're working with this team to maintain this app. So how is all of this getting funded? How all, how's all this happening? Yeah, so the National Science Foundation um, has been really great in giving us some funding. We, uh, we the Originally, we pitched this idea. It was I, I was kind of talking about it, pitching it around, talked to Amy Mirba, who had, I had worked with um, on some undergrad projects, and she immediately thought the idea was a really good one. It was like, hey, we really need to try this to get this built no matter what. So we, we actually spent a bit of time sending out... Um, like requests for like volunteers who knew something about app development to help us build this thing. And um, that didn't end up working out, but uh, we ended up realizing that since it was using, or we proposed it to use at the time, all these National Science Foundation funded data sets and things like that, it was a perfect outreach opportunity for them, which um, NSF is great about broader impacts. Um, and so we ended up writing a short proposal to um to NSF and it was actually funded like the next day after we sent it into some of the program officers. <laughs> it was like, okay. I think it was like 27 <laughs> hours or something. So I think that might be a record, but yeah, that has got to be a record. Was that part of a formal you know, call for proposals or is this sort of a rolling submission? So this kind was of kind thing? of a, yeah, more of a rolling thing. So it was for, uh, they call it eager funding. I couldn't tell you the acronym right now, what it stands for, but it's kind of, um, small risky grants that are kind of at the discretion of program officers and so um they can um fund things faster that way and so this was we just threw it out to them and they thought it was a great idea and ended up rolling with it 
And so since then, we've actually got a bit more funding um, through uh, the geoinformatics uh, division of NSF. And so that's what's funding my master's actually in the next stage of development here. So we've just started that grant. So yeah, NSF has been um, the key to this app existing. So why did you choose that method instead of just getting your team together and trying to do this commercially then? Yeah, I mean, that's what we were kind of trying to do before we had the kind of idea that this was a great outreach opportunity and that maybe mm -hmm. public funding would um, be a like a possibility. Um, so we were asking around, trying to, to get people together, and um, everyone thought it was really cool, of course, and like was was into the idea, um, but just like just like all the time, <laughs> nobody has any time to, to work on something um, without... If, if it can't really support their time, you know, so we just right. couldn't, we couldn't, um, get it going without a little bit of startup funding like this. So that, that's been, that was the only way that it was going to happen. It seemed like, so it really worked out. Gotcha. I, I think it's great. I think it's fantastic that it's all NSF funded and everything. That's, um, really neat. And I don't know, we've never talked about eager funding at all, John. I don't know if you had any no. experience with that either. So that's a pretty cool program too. Yeah. So, and, and we're also starting, we've kind of started a, we have a, a LLC now that, that has made zero dollars, but we're hoping to work with, <laughs> um, to, to somehow use the platform that we've created or the data that we've kind of figured out how to manipulate and kind of curated ourselves as, um, potentially a way to, to make a few bucks potentially and keep this thing rolling after the public funding ends because we wouldn't want to see it die. So potentially working with, I don't know, I would love to get flyover country or something like it or at least some kind of geology information onto the maps of the airplanes that they have in the seat backs so things like that like getting yeah forcing geology on people in the airplane <laughs> is my is my real goal here i'm pro that that's an excellent uh end <laughs> end goal i think well you know and right now those maps there's a lot of wasted space that people are sitting there staring at the little airplane figure go along the path and not being able to do anything else. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. So that's that's a great idea, but so you're getting this used by, I mean, your target is outreach, general public. I'm imagining that there's a lot of geologists like us that are excited about it as well, but what kind of feedback are you getting from users? What kind of user stories are coming back into you? Um, it's definitely a mix um lots of people uh love it love the idea love to play with it um there's definitely some bugs so we've heard um as soon as your thing gets out into the world people will find all the things wrong with it and and that's great like it's the only way we would find those things but yeah we, there's there's definitely some problems sometimes that people run into um but yeah generally it's been really amazing that that people have found it as cool and as useful as um, they have found it. So it's been really amazing to, to be a part of something like that. Uh, you guys were swamped at GSA the last year because I, I came up and stole some of your stickers, but I couldn't even get in there. There was a lot of people that were talking to you. So I imagine that is exhausting and rewarding at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the booth life is a mix of really <laughs> fun and like too much talking. But yeah, so it's always a great time. In the process of doing this and interacting with your users and making these decisions about what you're going to make available to them, what you're not going to make available to them, because there's a massive amount of information on the map when it comes up. Well, what were some of the most difficult decisions that you had to make in that process? Um, so far, I think like deciding what fauna 
from these fossil locations, I think has been the biggest challenge. Um, <laughs> there's just so much in those databases and so much amazing things. And like, I would love to present um, all the different mollusks to the people who really like mollusks. <laughs> um, but so far we've just chosen dinosaurs and these charismatic megafauna. So like paring down that the, these like wonderful resources with all kinds of amazing, cool stuff. All you have to do is put your mind in the right set and a mollusk mollusk is like an amazing, cool thing and you can learn all kinds of things from it. Um, but par- so paring down those data sets to be um, reasonable, um, at least for now um, where we're not kind of allowing users to, to build their own kind of adventure, which is something we would like to do in the future is allow people to say, Hey, I'm interested in mollusks. Give me mollusks. And then they could, could learn about those things. Uh, I think I think you are missing an opportunity here where you need to go to an elementary school and be like, what animals do you guys like that are now dead? Ooh, that's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> this sounds like the best thing. And I also didn't know that charismatic megafauna is a real thing, and that's fantastic too. <laughs> yeah. I always say that it's like completely part of my vocabulary now, but I don't realize that it's not a thing normal people say. <laughs> I'm going to say, like, I, I looked it up. I was like, is he just making that up? Because I'm going to use it either way. But no, it's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we picked that one up from the Neotoma folks. That's great. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this sounds like a really good place to maybe apply some machine learning. So you could do, like, Amazon or Netflix, you know, so people like or dislike or even Pandora seeing certain things. And then on the next trip, well, you might like this. And Interesting. you could see those <laughs> things. Uh, it sounds like something that if you get a large enough user base, there could be some really neat data mining opportunities there. I think you're right. Yeah. Like somehow getting some feedback mechanisms from this would be really powerful and really useful and, and potentially prove it a lot for people. Yeah. Because if you have a, a checkbox from mollusks, not many people are going to go check it. But if you show a lot of people a few mollusk facts and people start finding them interesting or spend a lot of time reading them, I guess they wouldn't have to click a button, you know, it's, that's one way to get some data back from the users, because I certainly probably wouldn't have checked that box, but if something really interesting showed up, I might spend a long time learning about it, and we would probably hear about it on here. Yeah. <laughs> Say if you found a charismatic mollusk that you uh, identified with. Yes. Is that <laughs> yeah, that's the term we need to start pushing, is charismatic yeah. mollusks. That's good. <laughs> the carbonate people will be super excited about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, listener Justin sent in a, a comment and question and said that he's seen maps of large erratics in the northwest U.S. where each one is labeled with the name of the boulder. And he thought it would be really cool to have hundreds or thousands of these on a map with arrows going back to where their origin could have been. And he said it would be like taking a geologic tour of Ontario via driving through Wisconsin, which Such is great. Such a cool idea. That's a great <laughs> that thought. Is. That sounds like a great master's thesis or 20. Really. And especially for a rock climber, somebody could get out there and boulder exactly. all those erratics. It'd be amazing. <laughs> you talk about how you've got to have this passion, you know, for your research. And that's the perfect example. That's yeah. great. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, there's another database for you to mine, right? Just rock climbing. Yeah. yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, Just, I've, I had a friend come across or come up with this idea that so Minnesota has great LIDAR throughout the state. And so you can see, presumably you could detect little deviations from the norm there and assume that they're 
glacial erratics, and you could use some kind of algorithm to find glacial erratics that other people hadn't found, I think. Um, and this guy's a big rock climber, so he was doing it. He's a geologist as well, so he was doing it for both the rock climbing idea and also um, <laughs> because it'd be great to find um, those boulders in general. But, uh, yeah, so there's, I think there's potential there. I don't know if anyone's done that yet. That's awesome. Yeah, there's so much data. It's just a challenge of parsing it all down <laughs> yeah. and finding ways to look at it. Uh, that's part of what EarthCube is about, right, is making data discoverable, accessible, usable, providing tools to do it and so on. Exactly. Um, so I've read in some of you guys' interviews, because you've been interviewed a lot about this app because it's so cool, um, that you want this to be used by both scientists and non-scientists alike. And obviously, you know, we're scientists, we use it because it's fun, but are there, do you have feedback from scientists using this for their actual research? So, so far, I think mostly what people have been able to use it for more research purposes are the, the great geologic maps that are in there. So just having a bedrock geology map with you out in the field can be really useful. Um, but also knowing that there's core sample locations from that lake over there or things like that, just knowing those data exist in your field site um, could potentially be useful. So okay. that's kind of what we've heard of people using it for is kind of like a data discovery tool for their field site. Um, but yeah, as we move forward with this, uh, hoping to, to get more data types and the ability for users to kind of choose their own um, adventure basically so they could choose what they're <laughs> interested in and, and download those data sets. That could be potentially more useful. So as you're out in the field um, taking new measurements and kind of making preliminary observations about those measurements, you could check those, check your kind of new hypothesis that you're coming up with out there as you're in the field um, against the data that's already there. So you wouldn't have to have that all crammed in your brain from all the papers you've read. You could actually have it on your device <laughs> and kind of reference the data that's already been taken while you're in the field. So that's kind of the ultimate goal is once we get more and more of these data types in there um, to, to allow scientists and educators and um, things like that to be out in the field and kind of really hit um, more hardcore geology data and understand a bit about it while you're actually encountering the things that got you that data. Awesome. Well, so do you interface with the the AIDA sample database and the International GeoSample Number Network? So that is on the list. They, yeah, that, that's <laughs> one of our next things is, is to work more closely with them and, and get some of those because they've, they've got great um, location information as well as tied to like actual physical samples and also tied to the people that took them. Um, so there's a lot right. of, of great provenance there so you could figure out who you should maybe collaborate with in your field area so so you maybe you didn't know that john doe worked in your field area as well and you might as well go talk to them because they know something you might not yeah and that's a really cool project i'll put a link in the notes for people who aren't familiar but the idea is you get a unique sample number for your rock that you've collected and you put in all your information that you know about it and attach any relevant data sets and somebody can go search that on this database and pull up that information, or you can you print out these little stickers that you stick on the rock. You can go up with your phone, scan the QR code, and it pulls up the record. So you don't have these piles of rocks laying around in bags that are poorly labeled with fading Sharpie in the lab. So I could see that being really awesome if you're in the field and you say, I don't need to pick this up. Somebody already did it. Oh yeah. And here's their geochemical analysis of it. Thanks. And keep walking <laughs> yeah save a little bit of space in the backpack for sandwiches yeah there you <laughs> exactly. go that's an important one <laughs> uh, well so are there any other 
apps out there that, I mean, I know there's nothing else that does this particular geology along your route, but what other apps should geologists have in a, a folder on their phone for when they're driving around? Yeah. So there's a, a couple I, other ones that I know of. Um, one and my favorite lately is uh, out of the UW-Madison um, Macrostrat Lab. So they are created one, they've created one called Rockd, R-O-C-K-D, um, that is kind of like, uh, what would it be? You can basically check into any outcrop. It gives you a great geologic map because, um, of course, they're Macrostrat and have the best geologic maps. And <laughs> you can check into these outcrops, take pictures of it, and kind of make an observation sheet and then upload that. And it's kind of a crowdsourced way to know what units look like what. So you can look at other people's check-ins and check out what, say, the St. Peter sandstone. You might read that it's a, a, a sandstone somewhere, but you don't know exactly what that particular sandstone looks like and so having someone else's picture um, of that sandstone can help you identify it um, and it's also just super fun you can kind of level up um, I think they use the Mohs hardness scale as uh, as you upload more and more um, check-ins you, you gain hardness so I think I'm a calcite now it's a pretty big deal <laughs> that's so it's, amazing uh, so it's Yelp for outcrops yeah something like that <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Four stars. <laughs> Rocks weren't so great, but excellent parking. <laughs> this is beautiful. <laughs> well, is there anything that we forgot or anything that you would like to add? Um, no, I think we've, we've covered a lot there. All right. Well, in that case, I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Yay! More cowbell. <laughs> and so this Fun Paper Friday is a listener submission. So Taryn Black on Twitter <laughs> sent this in to us. And it was mentioned to me about two years ago at a conference by Justin Ball. And he couldn't remember the name of the paper. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. And luckily, Taryn dug it up and brought it back. <laughs> to the, the forefront here, but it's called Unusual Love Waves Recorded Above the Cascadia Subduction Zone by Cassidy and Whitford of the Geological Survey of Canada. This paper is ridiculous. It's, it starts off subtly, and then you know you, you start to like notice weird parts Ex that might be hinting at something, and it just exactly. builds, and it just keeps going. <laughs> so, so John introduced it, you know, as hysterical, and I... I the first, just like you just said, it does. It seems just like a normal paper. And I'm like, why is this funny? Like, am I reading the right paper? No. <laughs> yeah, so the, the abstract, which is just a few sentences here, says, on January 11th, 1996, an extremely unusual recording was made by the Geological Survey of Canada's Seismograph Network. We have identified the source, and to our knowledge, this is the first recording of its type. The purpose of this short note is to document this extremely rare seismogram, which doesn't <laughs> sound that interesting. No. <laughs> But as it turns out, there was an emergent source at about 3.45 in the afternoon, and they noticed a lot of weird things. This was a very high amplitude source, but it wasn't seen on any of the surrounding stations. And the magnitudes didn't match up with anything. A, a coda magnitude was something like a 6.8, body wave magnitude was 1.2, and moment magnitude was 0 0.2. So none of this makes any sense, right? <laughs> uh-huh yeah yeah <laughs> um i thought this was pretty good there was a pretty good peak vertical acceleration right 10 10 centimeters per second squared 
Yeah, it's 0.01 G. It's not <laughs> not too much. <laughs> oh, God, that's hysterical. And ground velocity of one centimeter per second. Um, and so <laughs> this was great. So they freaked out because they thought maybe somebody was vandalizing the station, right? And they called the police and they called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. <laughs> and then they called the local school nearby so everyone could run out there and see if anything was happening. And, in fact, they did find something happening. <laughs> That right. <laughs> so when they arrived, they said that the the event stopped abruptly at 428 in contrast to its emergent onset. Beautiful. And that was the exact time that the officers and school staff arrived to find a young couple that had no idea that they were on top of a seismometer uh, making love waves of their own. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I, be- I believe the paper calls them mad, passionate love waves. I just want to get that That, that definitely was yes. in there. There's also oh, a sentence, waveform modeling suggested a single couple source. <laughs> Early on, very subtle. Start to notice something is weird with this paper. Oh, <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, this was, this was great. And they also point out the dominant period of one hertz. <laughs> that was yeah. in the in the waveform and they oh. actually have a on page three the whole paper is less than the text is less than a page but they have the day plot recording of this <laughs> which is embarrassing like that's but hysterical <laughs> <laughs> the actual seismogram from this event <laughs> oh and and you'll notice the they have a picture of the of the hut so you can see it's a flat concrete slab basically on the on the roof of this that they were on and these are the old drum recorders so the the pin moving on either paper or smoked glass this looks like it was probably uh, paper and ink but if you look at the seismogram figure two you see those little tick marks that occur along the horizontal axis and all line up mm-hmm. so that is how the timing was done Mm-hmm. on these those are ticks about every five uh, or on this scale they're every one minute so every one minute synchronized with the radio clock the pin would move and you would get these timing marks so you could then use your ruler and calibrate and measure different phase arrivals and that kind of thing <laughs> i don't think that this show is appropriate to talk about the different phase arrivals <laughs> of this particular size <laughs> right <laughs> Do you think this is like the origin story for a future geologist? I hope so, so badly. <laughs> oh, that could be. <laughs> this is beautiful. <laughs> well, and they, they note in particular, Allison Bent, who recognized that this was a single couple source. So I'm wondering if <laughs> at some point before the police got there, somebody figured out what was going on. Oh. <laughs> I mean, this oh. goes on for, let's see, one, two, three, four... It's about half an hour before the the police got there, so that would be a long time for somebody trying to beat down the door to get in this thing. It's persistence. Yeah, that is that's true. Good for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this was a great fun paper suggestion. I'm glad it it, it came back to the top of the pile, and <laughs> there is a PDF that anybody can get to. So we will have that linked in show notes, of course. <laughs> Shane, wanted to thank you for joining us and sticking around for Fun Paper Friday. It was a blast talking to you. And yes. if people want to get a hold of you, how can they 
uh, get in contact with you or the app team? Yeah, uh, you could like us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page and we respond to messages on that. You could also shoot me an email. Um, I'm loeff081 at d.umn.edu. Um, and yeah, I would love to hear feedback, ideas, all kinds of things. Thanks for having me on, you guys. This has been awesome. <laughs> yes, thanks well, for being here. It was super great. And if you have a fun paper or some feedback for us, we would love to hear it. Remember, you can send that in as an email or use the voice memo feature on your phone, and we will play your comment on the air. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, well, you can send those in, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're hanging out on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And we are on the Swung Slat chat room in the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.